Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Hello, OFAD lads and lasses. Andrew here doing something a little different today. Going solo. Uh, Caleb's not with me. This isn't really something I planned to do, but figured it was an opportunity to state my thoughts, get on the record about a few things that are going on in the world currently, and a few things that maybe at first glance don't seem all that related, but in the last day or two have sort of pieced them together and uh, see a common thread that's undergirding them, three particular stories, three particular issues that... Uh, I think when you look at them together, it actually tells us something very important about the world, very important about theology, very important about worldview, and this moment of time in which we are living. So I want to talk about three stories, three cultural events that are essentially going on right now. The first is something going on mainly on social media, so... I mean, how real, how significant is it? Um, One of the things about social media, like Twitter especially, because most of what I've seen about the thing I'm about to talk about is on Twitter, there's a tendency to say that Twitter is not real, and yet in another sense, Twitter is real, because Twitter is the platform on which much of our cultural conversation is happening, for better or worse or otherwise. Uh, may not be the best way to do it, but it's the way we currently have. But anyway, the controversy, it's a perennial one. It comes up every year or so, sometimes more often, and has been a recurring one for the last few years at least. The reigniting of the discussion regarding uh, the biblical accounts of King David and Bathsheba, which was, I mean, historically anyway, has been understood to be... uh, the great sin of David. It was an act of adultery where David, who was married at this point, and Bathsheba, who was also married at this point to Uriah the Hittite, they uh, commit adultery. And then David resorts to murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, to cover up the fact that Bathsheba has become pregnant by this illicit sexual relation. Well, in the last few years, there has been a particular effort to recast the story of David and Bathsheba as one of rape, that David has raped Bathsheba in this scriptural account, uh, that Bathsheba essentially would not have been able to consent, which consent is a whole other a can of worms that is probably beyond the scope of this discussion. But essentially, uh, David raped Bathsheba. This wasn't what we've traditionally understood as a case of adultery with possible seduction and other factors going on. It was essentially a unilateral sin on the part of David. So that is the discussion that has reignited and is raging once again on Twitter. Um, That's the first story. I'm going to tell you these three stories, and then I will comment on them and the thing I think that holds them together. 
The second story is a little uh, further afield, something that's like, how do you move from from the first story to the second story? So this one concerns Colin Kaepernick. Now, that is a name that has uh, been very much in the news over the last few years also regarding uh, what began some years ago. And I, I, I'll just say at the outset here, I don't follow professional football anymore. I used to a lot, uh, but mainly because of reformed Sabbatarian convictions. I, I don't follow professional football anymore. So, uh, But still, this makes news uh, outside of and beyond the sports world, the things that Kaepernick has been involved in, and most of them haven't even involved playing football. Uh, but it started, oh, back around 20, well, oh, look, I didn't have my phone silenced. Good job. Anyway, uh, it started back around 2016 with the national anthem protests that made quite a bit of news and that football players and this uh, spread to other sports, essentially, when the national anthem was played as it is at the beginning of most sporting events. Uh, rather than stand and, you know, remove one's head covering and honor the flag as people typically do. Uh, some instead, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, which was in its infancy at this point, uh, in light of some various police-involved shootings around the country. So, so before this became the, the nationwide wildfire that it did around 2020, but in the early days of BLM, in support of that movement, uh, many players uh, refused to salute the anthem because of what they believed to be systemic racism and oppression and violence against black people in the United States. They uh, they would not honor and, and uh, salute the nation's symbols. And Kaepernick was a leader in this movement against this. And uh, it essentially... Um, he ended up not being a professional football player anymore in large part after this. He uh, didn't last much longer with his team at the time. And as far as I know, he hasn't played again since. Again, I don't follow the sport, so I don't really know all the details there. But what has come up now involving Colin Kaepernick uh, that ties into what I'm talking about here today is that Colin Kaepernick has released, uh, along with a co-author who is a university professor at the University of Chicago, whose name has left me, but um, I saw an interview they did, I think it was on Good Morning America, about this graphic novel, which is a way to say that you wrote a comic book, but you want it to still sound uh, adult. I know that's probably a cynical assessment, but a graphic novel is essentially a comic book. But anyway, uh, it is depicting Colin Kaepernick's upbringing, particularly his teenage years. And what he is doing is he is essentially describing uh, the issues that he dealt with as a black man or a black young man, a, a black adolescent, being raised by white parents because Colin Kaepernick was actually raised, he was adopted by a white Christian couple. Uh, this is not a story that has been told that much in light of Kaepernick's uh, move into uh, racially motivated activism. But yes, Colin Kaepernick... From the time he was a few weeks old, he was adopted and raised by white parents. And I remember this because back around 2010, which was Colin Kaepernick's senior season in college, he 
was playing for the University of Nevada, which is a member of the Mountain West Conference. I follow Mountain West football because I am an alumni of the University of Wyoming, which also plays in that conference. So I did then and still do somewhat now follow uh, that particular corner of college football. And I remember watching Kaepernick play back then. Um, He wasn't really that well known outside the Mountain West, but he was a big deal in the Mountain West because he was a very talented player. Uh, made things difficult for a lot of the teams that he played, including the one I followed and supported. Uh, But I remember watching one of his games. It was when he actually led Nevada to an upset of Boise State. Uh, Boise State was in the contention for the national championship that year, which is a pretty rare thing in the Mountain West. And uh, Kaepernick's Nevada team uh, upset them, beat them unexpectedly, and brought those dreams to an end. Uh, but anyway, it was during halftime of that game. I was, I think we were watching it on ESPN, and they ran a story about Kaepernick's uh, story, his being adopted by white parents uh, and being raised by them after he had been abandoned by his birth parents. Uh, they didn't want him, they, so they put him up for adoption. And what's interesting is the way that the story was told back then in 2010 is it was it was strictly positive. It was strictly encouraging and uplifting. It was supposed to be, you know, the typical sports, uh, I hate to call it fluff because that's so cynical, but to, the feel-good sports story of a kid who comes from a rough uh, set of circumstances, a difficult set of circumstances, and overcomes the odds to be successful. Uh, you know, it's a story that's repeated a thousand times. Any sports movie or something you would see would would be this kind of a story. Um, but basically, yeah, it was about how these, this white and Christian, this was something that was put forward that they their Christian faith. I don't remember what exactly what church or denomination they were part of because this was, well, 13 years ago. Uh, but they were Christians and they professed to be Christians and Uh, They were even speaking about that on the national sports media. But anyway, um, it was entirely positive. Colin Kaepernick was talking about his love and support and encouragement that he had received from his adoptive parents and how grateful and thankful he was. Now, I couldn't actually find this interview anymore. It's so long ago. This was kind of when YouTube was in infancy. Um, I did find a similar one from about 10 years ago. When Kaepernick was preparing to play in the Super Bowl, that basically was the same. It was talking about his story, his adopted parents and adopted family. And even then, uh, 10 years ago, 2013, was all positive. It was all about how much he loved his family, uh, how much he uh, was encouraged and supported by them. In fact, I, I tweeted this. You can look on my Twitter. It's at R-E-F underscore Andrew. Um, I tweeted this out. Uh, that that video from 2013, as well as the current video um, about Kaepernick and his upbringing. And uh, yeah, he was very positive about and talked about how much he loved his family and, and essentially how grateful he was for them. But fast forward to now, there was this Good Morning America interview where uh, him and this professor are pushing this new graphic novel. And they're talking about... Uh, the difficulties Kaepernick faced, that he wasn't allowed to put his hair in cornrows and uh, all the various uh, forms of racial oppression and the unhealthy things that were going on in his upbringing. So 
It seems to me that Kaepernick has essentially changed his story. He's gone in the span of 10 plus years, which I realize is a long time. But from talking about how much he loved and uh, was thankful for and cared for his adopted family to, well, actually, they were uh, in various ways uh, unhelpful and, uh, you know, sort of oppressing him as a as a young black man. So that is story number two. Story number three was just one that I became aware of this morning. It was a another Twitter thing, a tweet thread from James Kessler. Now, James Kessler is a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. Now, just full disclosure, I'm not a part of the PCA. Um, I'm currently in a flux state between the URCNA and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, but I used to be in the PCA, and I have friends there. And, you know, I, I stay up on what's going on in the PCA because one of the things about the Presbyterian and Reformed world is that the PCA, being uh, the largest NAPARC denomination and having a bit more cultural capital and influence than denominations like the URC or the OPC, they're kind of upstream from the, the issues that eventually seem to find their way down to the rest of us. So what, what goes on in the PCA is important and should be important to you wherever you stand within our NAPARC um, American PNR world. So James Kessler tweeted out, women should serve as full members of the SJC, hashtag PCAGA. Now, just to parse out the alphabet soup there, SJC is the Standing Judicial Commission. It is, It has been characterized, I don't know how fair of a characterization this is, and I'm not an expert in PCA polity, but uh, the highest court in the PCA. It's basically the the highest appeal body for judicial cases under the General Assembly. It's a it's a it's a church court. They hear judicial cases and they decide them with authority delegated to it by the General Assembly. So the SJC has been in the news a lot, for instance, recently uh, because of the Greg Johnson case, which. That particular case seems to be over insofar as Greg Johnson and his church have left the PCA. But that's the Standing Judicial Commission. It is the uh, highest judicial body in the PCA. Well, because they are a church court, because they are a commission of the PCA, it is required that the members of the SJC be elders in the PCA. They have to hold office in order to serve on the SJC. So Kessler's proposal is problematic from that regard because the PCA formally does not allow women in office. Now, there have been various attempts to circumvent and loophole this. Uh, there have been cases where women have, though they may call it something else, have been allowed to preach on Sundays. Um, there are churches that... Uh, have women as deacons and they get around the BCO requirements that there not be women deacons by simply not ordaining deacons at all. Well, they're deacons, but they're not ordained, so it's okay. There's been a lot of these kinds of shenanigans from the progressive-leaning wing of the PCA. Now, James Kessler himself is a key figure, and I believe he was the founder of the National Partnership, which is essentially a secret lobbying organization in the PCA, for the purposes of uh, 
advocating particular positions, which again, leaning progressive, leaning more, uh, for lack of better terms, to the left wing of the PCA, basically to get favorable outcomes to that cause at the PCA General Assembly and to a lesser extent in its presbyteries. It basically was a secret political lobbying organization in the PCA. It existed for some years. And then last summer, the I believe it was last summer, might be getting two summers ago now. Time is abstract for me the last few years. But anyway, it was released, the emails of the National Partnership, because it basically existed as this long email chain. And so it was a secret organization no longer. Its its existence and its activities were made known for all to see. And Kessler was at the center of that. So now Kessler is saying that women should serve as full members of the SJC. And then that tweet, as you might expect, in light of what I said before about office, generated some blowback. And so Kessler further responded uh, with the following. Yeah, he added three more tweets. He said, hello, all first. And he says, number one, this is not about the particulars of the recent SJC result, which I don't even actually know what he's referring to there. But it is about the fact that we are discussing broadly how to enter into these cases with justice and mercy. The timing is right in that regard. Two, my view of male-only ordination remains intact. In fact, I preached on the issue fairly recently in that sermon regarding whether Christianity degrades women is publicly available. So it seems presumably he's uh, talking about an abuse case, a case regarding women and women's issues that has gone to the SJC. Again, I don't know what particular case he's commenting on. He says, finally, I've appreciated some of your potential polity solutions. Thanks for your thoughtfulness. I look forward to hearing more. This is very much, you know, the kind of uh, winsome middle way rhetoric you hear in a lot of the PCA. Like, I'm going to propose something very controversial, but then, you know, I'll... You know, even when you get major blowback for it, just, well, I'm going to be all positive about it. But anyway, all this to say, in order for Kessler to get what he initially proposes here, the women as full members of the SJC, there's actually only two ways to accomplish this. The first is egalitarianism, despite what Kessler says about male or only ordination. Uh, the way that women could be full members of the SJC as it is now is to allow women to serve as elders, allow women to be serving in the ordained office, and then they could be full members of the SJC. That is one possible option. That's not a good option. The second option is also not a good option, and that is essentially some form of congregationalism. And what I mean there is that you allow the the courts of the church, the ruling and governing bodies of the church, to be populated with non-officers, uh, to allow uh, just normal lay members of churches to serve on the church courts and to rule in judicial cases, um, which again is de facto congregationalism. It's rule by the congregation, rule by the laity, as opposed to rule by officers. Either way, biblical Presbyterian church governance, where the offices are restricted as they are biblically to qualified men goes out the window. There is no solution to what Kessler is positing without um, going one of those two routes. And like I said, either is, is the end of Presbyterianism, of biblical Presbyterian government. 
But that's actually kind of a little aside from the point of what I want to make and the point that ties these three stories together. What ties these three stories together is that they seem to be drawing from a common worldview, one that is particularly popular and pernicious in our days and then has taken off like wildfire in the last few years, and that is a worldview influenced by critical theory. Now, perhaps a lot of the people participating in these discussions would say, well, I'm not pushing critical theory, and maybe they don't mean to. But I think all of these issues come back to issues that find their basis in critical theory. Critical theory is a Marxist ideology. It originated in the early part of the 20th century, uh, mainly within a thing called the Frankfurt School, uh, where there were various philosophers and uh, writers and such that uh, sort of laid the groundwork for a lot of what we see in our day, where all of history and all of society begins to be looked at through this lens of the oppressed and the oppressors. Now, this can take on a lot of different forms. It can take on a racial element. We see this in Colin Kaepernick and his activism and the things that he has associated himself with and the claims he's making now about his family. But you also see this in feminism. You see this in issues regarding the role and place of women. And this is where these tweets from Kessler as well as what I mentioned at the beginning regarding David and Bathsheba and the recasting of that story, those both seem to draw from the feminist strand of critical theory. Let me explain. When you look at the David and Bathsheba situation, what you essentially have is an attempt to recast the situation between David and Bathsheba as rape because for those who embrace this critical theory worldview and mindset, rape is exclusively about power dynamics. So rape, and I'm not saying that power dynamics are not a part of rape. They are, they very much are, but there's more to it. There's also, there is a sexual aspect. There are aspects of desire. There can be a lot of different factors that go into why someone might choose rape to rape somebody or to sexually assault somebody. Uh, but all that to say, in this minimalistic critical theory analysis, it becomes that rape is essentially about power dynamics. And so you can you see this in some stories and controversies you might hear. You might have a, say, for instance, the, the classic example, a boss is sleeping with his secretary. Now, this is not a new problem, sadly, but it is something that happens well now you could have claims made that well because the secretary was the secretary and works for the boss um though she may have consented to the relationship um it's a rape simply because the man was from a more powerful position coming from a position of power so with the david and bathsheba situation it's not only a recasting of the biblical story a, re a reinterpretation of the biblical story but it's also essentially a redefinition of rape to make it strictly about power which this is what critical theory does to everything it, it casts everything around this oppressor and oppressed power dynamic when in reality it seems if you read the biblical text there was other things going on in that story there was david's lust and desire and 
And we don't see anything in the text that indicates that Bathsheba was not on board with this. She was bathing on the roof. She was uh, potentially um, exposing herself uh, in an inappropriate way to David to get his attention. Again, we don't know. There's only so much details were given, but there's more to the story than a strictly uh, powerful man rapes powerless woman. It's a very different and more complicated story than that. As far as Kaepernick, why does this relate? Well, it relates because Kaepernick is basically recasting his childhood experience, it seems, around this oppressor and oppressed narrative. He, because he is black, uh, though he had loving and supportive and Christian parents who helped him along the way and helped him to succeed, he is now revising that story, reinterpreting that story as, well... I was black. I wasn't allowed to have cornrows and look like Alan Iverson. That was what he said in the interview. He wanted to look like his hero, Alan Iverson. And, and because of that, that was very unhealthy. And this was, this was a way in which my family wronged me. The third story, Kessler and his tweets, I think it has a similar problem in that, why are we Presbyterian, those of us who are Presbyterian? We are Presbyterian because we believe that it is biblical. Because we believe that based on our reading of Scripture, that this is how God has established his church and how he wants it to run. God appoints elders and he appoints deacons to serve in those offices and to fulfill the tasks associated with them. So Kessler, because of power dynamics because of the belief concerning women as oppressed and men as oppressors, it takes on this form that men are essentially, because they are privileged, because they are oppressive, and maybe this isn't Kessler's particular position, but it seems to be the sort of ideology that undergirds uh, pushes like this, is that the roles of men and women have to be recast in the church, that because men are privileged and have... Uh, benefited from their oppressor status. Uh, there needs to be an empowerment of women. There needs to be a subversion of the order to undo what this hostile power dynamic has done. Uh, that might be an oversimplification, but that's basically the gist. We, we need women involved in leadership and we need women involved in our judicial processes to make up for the privilege and oppression that men have exercised towards women. Now, I'm not saying that abuse does not happen. Um, I'm not saying that rape or sexual assault don't happen. They very much do. But the issue is they, like everything, must be recast and reinterpreted through this oppressor and oppressor power dynamic, through this lens of critical theory. Now, if you are new to this concept of critical theory, well, welcome. It's good to have you now aware of these things because it's very much in the air we breathe the water we drink is everywhere in the world around us anytime you're seeing people talking about these pushes for diversity and inclusion and equity and tolerance and all this stuff it's essentially breathing the air of critical theory this stuff is everywhere you can't really even get away from it now but basically that's what it boils down to is it's recasting everything in the world around this oppressor and oppressed oppressed power dynamic uh, this is also where we get intersectionality. If you have more of these oppressed groups you belong to or could belong to, um, you need to be more privileged. You need to be more empowered. You're basically, you basically need to be elevated more. So like 
if you're black, that's one. But then if you're a black woman, that's another. And then if you're a lesbian black woman, that's another still. Or a trans black woman, you know, on and on and on. You just keep adding to it. And the more intersections you have, essentially, the more elevated and empowered you need to be. Now, why do I bring up all three of these stories? Well, besides the fact that they all point us to this uh, very prevalent worldview of critical theory, uh, which we need to be on the lookout for, um, I want to talk about why these three stories, uh, why I want to talk about them here is, I think when you look at the world this way, and when you let this influence uh, how you look at the world and not only how you look at the world generally, but how it affects the most fundamental things in the world. So with David and Bathsheba, you see uh, this critical theory worldview affecting how scripture is interpreted. The word of God, which is the most fundamental thing of all, uh, has God said we're, we're back in the garden. Um, we're doing critical theory reinterpretations of biblical texts. Or with Kaepernick, you see critical theory uh, causing him to despise and publicly criticize his family, his adopted family, which, uh, you know, as I saw this back in 2010 for the first time hearing the story, I'm like, man, this is a beautiful picture. This is a picture of grace. This is a picture of the gospel, how uh, the uh, unwanted is adopted how the um you know because adoption is one of the things that we see in scripture to describe what god does for us in our salvation we were uh, dead and fallen and hopeless and we were adopted uh, by god so adoption is, is a great picture of the gospel but in light of a critical theory worldview uh, this is twisted, this is perverted, and what should have been this beautiful thing is now tarnished. Uh, with Kessler now, we're taking a God's good and proper order for the church, and we're overthrowing it, we're getting rid of that. We need to change that fundamentally uh, to suit this oppressor and oppressed dynamic. And what ties all these things together is a critical theory worldview just makes the world very ugly, very adversarial where you now have uh, a man attacking his family who loved him and supported him and he would admit from his uh, previous times before he was such a social justice activist that they loved him and supported him well you have a man seeking to overthrow what is good and right in the church because of this critical theory worldview. And then with the David and Bathsheba thing, you have people seeking to twist and misinterpret scripture because of the critical, the critical theory worldview. So the bottom line to all of this is this critical theory and the worldview that it undergirds. It just makes the world ugly and it makes the world full of untruth and dishonesty. And that is why this worldview of critical theory, where everything is reduced to these oppressor-oppressed power dynamics, that's why it's so poisonous. It's why it's so cancerous. It destroys good things. It destroys true things. It destroys beautiful things. Uh, this beautiful picture of an adoption of an unwanted child and how he 
um, was raised in a loving family that, that truly wanted him and truly loved him. And now he must reject them or how God has, uh, through Christ built his church, you know, and Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But so many people now say, well, that's not good enough. We have to apply these modern sociological theories and redo how we think of church or we have to rethink how we interpret scripture. Uh, we need to take out the agency of Bathsheba. We need to recast this story to suit our oppressor oppressed narrative rather than understanding the more clear truths about the dangers of, uh, of adultery and, and all the various ways that sin leads to death, but also seeing the grace of God in that it was still through David and Bathsheba and from their descendants that Christ would ultimately come. And we see David's repentance. We see that it is David and Bathsheba's son Solomon who carries forth the kingdom. It's again, it's another beautiful picture of the gospel, but it has to be recast as this dark and ugly thing. So critical theory is a cancer. There's no two ways about it. Um, we shouldn't entertain it. We can't entertain it because it just seeks to make the world uh, untrue and ugly. And that's why I bring these three stories together and talk about them. We have to reject this ideology. We have to reject this worldview and instead uh, strive for the truth and strive to know and love and appreciate what is good and true and beautiful and what is biblical, what is grounded in God's word and what is clearly taught within it. So anyway, those are my ramblings. Uh, I am Andrew Smith. Thank you for joining. Hope you learned something. Hope this is helpful to you. As always, you can like and share and, and do whatever you do on whatever platform you hear this, uh, be it a podcast, YouTube, whatever. Uh, tell your friends. You can subscribe, onceforalldelivered.com. Consider becoming a paid subscriber if you want to help us improve the show, get more content out. Um, you know, everything we get, we reinvested in the show to make it better. This isn't to enrich ourselves, but and we appreciate the support that we have. We still need a pithy catchphrase, pithy sign-off phrase. We've had some suggestions. We've been trial running some of them, but uh, we're always open to suggestions. But anyway, so I'm Andrew Smith. Thanks for joining. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once for All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.